Okay, I want to give you guys an, like a personal example. I want to give you a quick personal example. Also, heads up, I had a cold this week, so I am, I'm still clearing out, okay, guys? Like, that's a gross way to put it, but that's just happening, okay? And so I'm going to do my best to not let that affect this, this morning. But uh, I, I want to give you guys a personal example of how reading Revelation in a way that respects what Revelation is trying to do and also respects its genres, like the fact that it's apocalypse, that it's prophecy, that it's a letter to real people, uh, and, and then also respects that it's using these images from the Old Testament to communicate these things in symbolic ways. I, I want to point out how when I've begun to read Revelation like that, it's changed how I read Revelation. Like, it's changed how I understand Revelation. It's changed how I see the images in Revelation. So before, when I would read Revelation, probably just a few years ago, I would read Revelation and just kind of go, I don't know about, like, what is this saying? I don't know. And even before that, when I would read Revelation, how it would go, I would kind of read it, and every single thing I read in Revelation, I would say, how can I speculate about this? How can I predict what this is going to be at some point in the future. Now, though, I, I, tr I read it very differently. I read it respecting all those things that I said on the front end, and that's, that's because different people and pastors and scholars help disciple me into it. So now when I read it, I let the apocalyptic images pour over me. So now when I read it and I go through the images, instead of trying to speculate and predict, I actually try to imagine. Like I, I read the images, I read the, the descriptions of the images, and instead of trying to predict about the images, I actually just imagine the images in my mind like artwork or like a cartoon or like a big, huge, like 3D thing going on in the sky as often things are going on in the sky in Revelation. And so, so this has changed how I read Revelation and the symbols and the images in Revelation. So take something like the mark of the beast. Take something like the mark of the beast. It's mentioned in chapter 13, which is the chapter that we're in, in the book of Revelation today. I used to get to this part and read about this mark of the beast. And how I used to read is I used to go, I wonder what that will be or how that will be enforced. That's kind of how I used to read about the mark of the beast. Growing up, I heard that the mark of the beast was gonna be like a microchip, especially like those dog microchips when your dogs get lost and you're like, whoop, right? So all our dogs have mark of the beast. And so uh, that's what I grew up hearing a lot or I heard that it would be like a tattoo, right? During COVID, I heard a few things that, that the, I, the mark of the beast would be, right? Uh, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure I have at least one or two relatives that thinks I have the mark of the beast in my veins right now. Uh, <coughs> but so that, either way though, that, when I used to read Revelation, it used to be very predictive, speculative, going, okay, what will this mark of the beast be? How will it work? How will it be enforced? And here's what I want to say. That way of reading Revelation and that way of reading the mark of the beast totally misses it totally misses what the imagery is trying to do. It totally misses what God is trying to do and trying to speak through the imagery in the book of Revelation. 
if we begin to read Revelation in a way that imagines rather than speculates and predicts, it will change how you understand the images. Here's, here's how it played out for me. Here's how it played out for me uh, with the Mark of the Beast in particular. Over the last few months, the last year, as I've been re-reading Revelation and scholarship on Revelation, and I began to read it differently, as I'm reading through Revelation, I notice this thing that keeps happening in the book of Revelation. And the thing is this, is God, he keeps sealing his people. It's happened so far, I think, two, maybe three times in our reading so far of Revelation. Two or three times, God seals his people. He usually uses an angel to do it. And now when I'm reading that, I imagine like almost like God's thumb coming down and putting like a royal seal on us. I almost imagine it like God's thumbprint, which I, I think that might be because of Left Behind too. But, uh, but I, imagine, I imagine like God just kind of sealing us on our forehead with his name. And, and I began to imagine, and I just kind of imagine like there's utterly like changing every person that he seals. And so we've seen that a couple times in the book of Revelation already. And, and, and God's, we see God's people has, have this special mark on him. Now, last week we got to Redemption or, or Revelation chapter 12, and we're in Revelation chapter 13 today. And we see these images that are a parody of God, a parody of God. Last week we saw the dragon, and we learned that the dragon is Satan. So there's this big image of a dragon that, that represents Satan. And this week, we're going to see a beast rise up from the sea, and we're going to see a beast rise up from the earth, and we're going to see that these three together are a parody of God. We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and this parody of God is dragon, beast from the sea, beast from the land. So what we see from the beast today in the text, and this is where Mark of the Beast comes from, is one of those beasts in particular goes and starts to mark the Roman citizens with a mark of the beast, okay? And so every Roman citizen is forcibly getting this mark of the beast. So I began, instead of speculating or trying to predict about the mark of the beast, I began to try to, to really more fully understand, like visualize the, the imagery there. And what I began to visualize was like this just clawed beast hand coming in and just forcibly marking all the citizens of Rome and they just become these kind of like dr dr drone people, these drones of the dragon. In fact, the imagery I kind of imagine is, is like the imagery you see in this like famous Apple commercial. You could go ahead and put up one of those first pictures. So this is a famous Apple commercial when they first were introducing Macintosh. You could go to the next picture. And in it, everybody is like this drone person. Everybody is this like, kind of like, they're all the same. They're saying the same things. They, they're, they're all listening to this, vo this voice on the screen that just sounds evil and corrupt and all this kind of stuff. And so when I began to read Revelation with new insight, kind of understanding the imagery and trying to understand the imagery, what began to happen was I began to see the mark of the beast more like this, as a parody of God's mark how God is marking and sealing his people and giving them a new name and a new identity, all of a sudden, I began to go, man, the mark of the beast really works more like this. It's like this evil spiritual force is marking all people and turning them into these drones of the dragon. That's totally different 
than how I used to read Revelation. That's totally different than how I used to read when I read about the mark of the beast. And it's because I was now engaging my imagination when I read Revelation because that's what Revelation wants to do. It wants to engage your imagination. It wants you to imagine these things. Obviously, my imagination, I think, is going a little bit farther than the imagery is describing, but I even think in my imagination, I am picking up on what the imagery is trying to communicate. And so, uh, I, I just point that out to say that Revelation 13, which we'll be in today, we often have read predictively or speculatively but I think we're called to read it using our imaginations, understanding what Revelation is trying to do. And when we use our imaginations, it is then when we get to hear and understand what God is speaking through these various images. And the images in Revelation 13 are often images we would rather predict about than imagine and understand and see what God is trying to communicate. So, uh, that's kind of how my reading of Revelation has changed. Here's what we're going to do today with chapter 13 of Revelation. I, uh, we're going to do th three things. First, I'm going to read most of chapter 13 of Revelation. And then I want to take each of the famous images in chapter 13 and understand what those images meant to the first century Christians and then I want to, after understanding that, I want to take some time and see what messages Revelation 13 is speaking to us today. Okay? Does that make sense? Let's hop into it. We don't have a lot of time. I'm going to take a quick drink. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. And the reason I'm reading large sections in this series a lot is because the images together tell a unified story. And so it's hard for me to just pull verses here and there when the images together want to engage our imaginations. So, chapter 13, we'll go 1 through 8, and then we'll hop down to 11. But here's what it says, verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Let's hop down to verse 11. Then... I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. 
And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, so recap. Last week, again, we got the imagery of this red dragon in the, in the sky. We know that that red dragon is Satan. John spells it out for us right there in chapter 12. And then in this chapter, we get this beast from the sea and then this beast from the land. Now, some scholars think beast, it, it's, a, it's a fine translation of the word, but to kind of communicate what John was trying to communicate, maybe a different word would be a little bit better. A word like monster or a word like wild thing. Something like that, a lot of scholars kind of go, that would be a little bit better word to describe what John is trying to describe. He's saying there is a beast that came up out of the ocean. There is a beast that came up out from the crevices of the earth. And so we get this first beast, this beast beast that comes up from the ocean. And this beast we see, described in the chapter, it has followers and worshipers. And we find out that those followers and worshipers, by being worshipers of the beast, they are worshipers of the dragon. They might not even know it, but as they worship the beast, they're actually worshiping the dragon. And we see that this first beast, he speaks these blasphemous words against God, and he makes war on God's people. And then there's the second beast or monster from the earth, And what we see about this second beast is he's kind of like the hype master of the first beast. Like his whole thing is like lifting up the first beast. He's like, that beast is the best. Worship that beast. In fact, this beast even has like powers, uh, powerful words, powerful signs, miracles maybe even. (coughs) And he does all of these things to point to the first beast to say, hey, the first beast is worth worshiping. We also find out that that beast is the beast that is putting this famous mark of the beast on all people. doesn't matter who you are, it says. And then we find out this very famous number, this 666, right here. If you're ever wondering where that number came from, why it's famous, it's the Bible, okay? It's from the Bible. It's from this chapter in the Bible. It's from that verse that I read. So how do we interpret these images of the beast? What is this mark? What is this number? How do we understand these things? Now, I want to be clear. Throughout Christian history at times, (coughs) excuse me, throughout Christian history at times, beast number one has a lot of times by Christians been called the Antichrist. And that term even has been used in a lot of different ways throughout Christian history. But a lot of times, a lot of Christians throughout history have gone, beast number one is the Antichrist. Now, I just want to point out, That term, Antichrist, (coughs) spiritual attack on my throat right now. Um, (laughs) That term, the Antichrist, it's not used anywhere in the book of Revelation. 
It's only used in 1 John and 2 John in the Bible. We did a deep dive on that in our 1 John series. I would suggest to go back and look at that because the way that 1 John talks about the term the Antichrist is very different than how we have used that term and how a lot of Christians have used that term. It's, you know, in 1 John, it's it's like this group of people that didn't believe something about Jesus's Christness, okay? So... Heads up, a lot of people think that. I obviously disagree. Growing up, also, left behind, they, uh, they said beast number one is the Antichrist, this figure that will come at the end of time and rule history, and beast number two is his false prophet that essentially does all these kinds of miracles to prop up the first beast. <coughs> this is going to be a rough one, guys. Um, so, I think it's no surprise after eight weeks... I uh, differ from left behind on how to interpret these verses. And so, but how do we figure out what this means then? How do we figure all this out? (coughs) I think it would be really hard to figure it out if we didn't have that famous little evil number. 666, that famous little evil number, the number that freaks us out when our change comes back as 666. (laughs) That actually, I think, is the key to figuring out who the beasts are. <coughs> I'm sorry, guys. This is horrible. Um, so I, I, I'm not smart enough to have figured out what 666 means and how it's a clue to who the beasts are and how we can understand what the first century people thought these images, like what they thought of these images and who they thought they, these images were. But there's lots of scholars that are, and I'm going to read a long quote. I know you're, not, you're used to me reading long quotes, and I'm going to read long quotes till the day I die to you guys. And so that's just, I just like to give credit where credit's due. And honestly, they're more eloquent than me and can say things more concisely. And so it's a long quote, but they can put, they just put it at the same time concise and thorough much better than I could. And so let me read this quote. It's from Scott McKnight and Cody Matchett from their book, Revelation for the Rest of Us, where they help us figure out what 666 means, and that helps us figure out what the beast imagery means, okay? <clears throat> so here's what they say. Many readers of Revelation today get snagged in the 666 web of speculation, Wondering what such a number means, how numbers like this worked in John's world, and to whom 666 might apply today. The NIV's number, 666, at Revelation 13, 18, in Greek, reads, the number is 666. It's wise to begin with the undeniable. If 777 is triple perfection, we've talked about seven in that way in the series, 666 is triple imperfection, or falling short. It is the number of a human versus God. In Greek, there were no numbers. Letters were used both as letters and numbers. Think of how Latin writes its numbers, what we today call Roman numerals. That number in Greek would be chi, kasai, sigma. Letters easily uh, became numbers, and the art of turning them into numbers is called gematria. So, 666 is the numerical value of three letters. That means the reader is encouraged to play with the numbers to find something suitable, usually a name. Who will it be is not the right question to ask, though. Rather, we should ask, who was it for John? And who might it be for us? Okay, still with me? All right, there's still more quote. To begin... To begin, we go back to the time when the book of Revelation was written. Nero, Caesar, in Greek, is Neron, Kaiser. 
adds up to 666 when translated into Hebrew. 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 50 plus 100 plus 60 plus 200 equals 666. Some manuscripts of Revelation here do not have the number 666, but instead 616. And if one drops off the second N in Neron, that name then totals 616. So it seems clear that 666 is gematria for Emperor Nero. But Nero is not alone in satisfying such a calculation because 666 is also the numerical value of the world, world therion, which is the Greek word for beast or wild thing. This was likely all great fun for the first readers of Revelation. <clears throat> That's it for that quote. So I know that was a lot of reading, but that helps us understand 666 better as well as who the beast is, beast number one, beast from the sea, that John is referring to. It seems that 666 was a number that was used in a very cheeky and clever way, a roast, one could say, that pointed to Nero who was one of the craziest and cruelest Caesars of all time. Like, go look at the history books. Nero was one of the craziest and cruelest Caesars of all time. Now, to be fair to other scholars, other scholars take this number and they do this whole gematria thing, and they come up with different Caesars sometimes. So there's a lot of different Caesars, different emperors of Rome that this could be. Um, most, the consensus is that it was probably Nero or pointing to Nero in some way, but it... If it's not Nero, it probably points to a Caesar in particular. One of these emperors, a lot of their names actually really work well with 666, which is just kind of wild and crazy. And so maybe I should put my name in and just see what happens. And so, so 666 is this absolutely beautiful wordplay roast that John is using from the first century to call Nero an ungodly beast. Like, that's what he's doing with this. So, that helps us know who beast number one is. Who is beast number one? Who did the first century Christians think beast number one is? They thought it was Nero or one of the Caesars. Or, or even, if you want to go more broadly, Nero as a representative of all of the Roman Empire. Of all of Rome's leadership. Okay? So, beast number two in the image story of chapter 13, is someone that props up beast number one. So who's beast number two? How do we know and figure out who beast number two is? Well, because of what beast number two is doing in the image story of chapter 13, a lot of scholars tend to go, okay, beast number two was, was anyone that lifted up, and, or point, lifted up and pointed at the Caesars as divine, in, in a similar way that we see beast number two doing that for beast number one in the image story. So this has led scholars to go, okay, beast number two was Rome's propaganda machine. If you guys don't know this, Rome was massive at, like, at doing propaganda all the time. They were all the time putting out notices, scrolls, all kinds of things about who they were. They were all the time going... This is who we are. We're awesome. When they would roll into a town, they would proclaim the gospel of Rome. They're saying, good news, we're here. We run the place. Your life's going to be good now. This is what Rome would do. And so their propaganda machine was this massive 
working thing. It was like institutional in Rome and used in all kinds of ways to prop them up, to point to them. So some scholars go, beast number two is their propaganda machine. Other scholars go, hey, this imperial cult, which we've talked about in this series already a good amount, this imperial cult, which basically was this cult that it came into and mixed with every religion in Rome and caused every religion to ultimately worship the Caesars in some kind of way, to see them as divine, to see them as the son of God, to see them in all kinds of ways. And the imperial cult was this true institution, this true religion of their day that was mixed with all the other religions that would prop up Caesar, that would prop up Rome, that would prop up previous Caesars in all kinds of ways. And so some scholars think it's the imperial cult. Some scholars think it's the propaganda machine. I personally think beast number two represents all of that. I think all of that was going on in Rome. And John might have had one of those things more specifically in mind. But both of those things propped up Rome in the same ways that we see beast number two propping up beast number one. And so I think Beast number one was Nero or Caesar or could, you could even say Ro the Roman Empire itself. And I think beast number two was anyone, but especially the Roman institutions that encouraged or forced people to worship Caesar or Rome as divine. Okay? So, for the first century Christian, beast number one was likely Nero, if not a different Caesar, Beast number two was anyone or institution that propped up the worship of the Caesars. And 666 was a clever wordplay to call Nero a beast of the devils, okay? We've hit three out of the four major things in this chapter. So, mark of the beast. What was the mark of the beast? Uh, a lot of scholars think this whole mark of the beast thing that John is referencing something that was going on in Rome. Like there was some kind of thing going on with some kind of mark, and we just don't know what it is. So as I've done lots of reading on trying to figure out what these symbols meant to the first century Christians, no one is quite sure what this mark is that John's referring to. So much so that some go, it might have just been a metaphor of what life was like for Christians in certain regions of Rome. Like they might have, for Christians in certain regions, they weren't allowed to buy or sell because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. And so they go, that, that's what John's referencing here. Some think it was like a tattoo that certain slaves would get, maybe slaves of the Caesars. Some think it was just a general tattoo all slaves would get. Some thought it was maybe part of the imperial cult worship and how they would point to Caesar and worship God. But we actually don't exactly know what John's referring to here, and that's okay. It's just good for us to know that. Uh, we haven't figured that out. Maybe more archaeological work will be done and we'll be able to figure out exactly something that can give us a better idea, but, but we don't know. So, all that being said, even without knowing what, exactly, what practice exactly John is referring to that was going on in the first century, I think it's safe to say that the mark of the beast is a symbol of the beast marking himself and his ways, which are the dragon's ways, on all Roman citizens as drones of, of the dragon and the beast's. The, the mark of the beast, it, it's, it's an ugly parody of God's seal that he puts on his people that we see all throughout Revelation. So this whole ecosystem of the imperial cult of worshiping the Caesars, of Caesar propping himself up and having others prop him up, this whole 
thing was an ecosystem in the first century, and this ecosystem of cultural religion was forced on everyone. It was forced on everyone, and it was mixed into every religion. And the Christians of the first century probably really loved hearing this imagery because it helped them go, okay, life is hard because I don't want to bow the knee to Caesar. And John and God through John is unveiling, look, there are spiritual forces at work. What you're feeling is the spiritual evil in this world in different kinds of ways. The powers behind the Roman powers you see is the dragon himself. And that dragon wants to mark you through those Roman powers. It wants to control you. It wants you to worship them and thus himself instead of Jesus. So I, I really think Revelation's earliest readers, they would have seen all this. This would have been obvious to them. Like it's not like us where we have to do all this scholastic work. They would have been like, oh, John just got Nero. Like they would have just like, oh, like that's how they would have reacted. They would have known right away. So the question then becomes, okay, if these, symbol, if these symbols and images were mean, meant real things to people in John's day, do they mean real things to us today? And you know where I'm going with this. I think this is God's word. So yes, they do mean things to us. I think that God's word speaks to all times, all places, all peoples, to any day in history. So I think 666 and the beast, I think they're timeless images. For, for time's sake, I'm not going to read two quotes. Sorry, Mia, who's running our pro presenter. Um, I was going to read two quotes that said, like, one was like, hey, the beast is a timeless image, okay? And then the second quote was going to be like, hey, 666 is a timeless image, okay? And basically for us to go, hey, where do we see the beast in our worship? Where do we see the beast in our, our empires and many empires? Where, where has the beast crept in and where have we mixed our Christian faith with, with it? Who are the people in our societies who are operating like the beast, using destruction and hate and evil to build their own empire where they are Lord? The beast and 666 are symbols to help us remind that evil does exist and it does influence us in different kinds of ways. And so... Because those are timeless symbols, because those are things that I think are, are not just for the first century to look at, but for us to look at, what are the messages that Revelation 13 speaks to us today through these same symbols, right? And maybe a plot twist, they're not, we're not going to use these symbols to speculate or predict we're going to use these symbols in a timeless fashion to convict ourselves, to wake ourselves up, to see what God is trying to speak about any empire that uses destruction especially and other things to make itself an empire, to rule over people, to hurt people, to be anti-God, any empire that speaks anti-God messages as well, okay? So three messages from Revelation 13, that I think we should listen to that speak to us today. Message number one. It says this. These uh, will be on the screen. Message number one is this. Wake up to the fact that it is indeed the dragon working behind the scenes when you see the destructive and blasphemous ways of the empire. When empires, institutions, or people look or act 
like Nero or the Caesars or the Roman Empire or the imperial cult, the dragon is working behind the scenes animating those beasts. Wake up to that fact. It's not just happening in Rome. It's happening every time in every place in different kinds of ways. Worship any empire that does things the way that Nero does them, and you are worshiping the beast, which is also worshiping the dragon. Wake up to that, church. That's what the imagery in Revelation 13 is trying to do. It's trying to wake you up. It's trying to go, look how bad this is. Look how you could get stuck in this. Look at what's really going on from a heavenly perspective. And don't bow the knee to Caesar in those ways. That's what these images are trying to do. That's why they're startling. That's why they're striking. That's why they're monsters coming from the sea and from the earth. They, the images are made to wake us up. Wake up to the fact that it is indeed the dragon working behind the scenes when you see the destructive and blasphemous ways of the empire. Okay? Message number two from Revelation 13. Message number two is this. Don't fall for the parody of God seen in the dragon and the beasts. It will mark you. Don't fall for the parody of God seen in the dragon and the beasts. It will mark you. It is easy to fall into worship of our empires and convince ourselves the empires we worship or the many empires that don't have the name empire that we worship, it's easy for us to be convinced that they are just like Jesus. This is the thing that haunts me the most from this chapter. Beast number one goes through this Jesus-like mortal wound and comes back to life. Beast number two speaks and talks like the lamb, it says, like Jesus. This haunts me because it is imagery showing us how easy it is to fall into worshiping something like an empire, like a Nero, like an institution, and think you're worshiping Jesus. Now, now, scholars think that this mortal wound thing especially was something maybe that really actually happened to Caesar, and so maybe it points to some real thing. But I think that John is using this imagery also to point to the fact that empires and the way of the dragon actually imitate Jesus to trick you. They, they, they convince you that they are like Jesus, that they are imitating Jesus, that they're speaking like Jesus, that they look like Jesus, that they resurrect just like Jesus, so that you worship them, but you're actually worshiping them the beasts and the dragon instead of Jesus. And Revelation 13 wants to wake you up to that and say, watch out for that. Watch out for that trick of the devil. Right? Listen, no Christian wakes up thinking, you know what? Let's worship Satan today. Like, you know, like no Christian, or if they do, like that's a, you know, it's a dark part of their journey. You know, like that's like, that's not, no one wakes up thinking that, right? No Christian wakes up thinking, you know what I want to do? Let's worship an empire today. No Christian I know, even ones that like empires. Like they're, like, they're not like, I want to worship an empire today. No Christian wakes up going, you know what, today, let's worship the president. They don't wake up going, I'm going to worship the president today. No Christian I know. Both sides of the room are like, no, no, they do. Like, no, no. 
no Christian, I know no Christian that wakes up going, I want to worship the president today. No Christian wakes up thinking those kinds of things. But we do wake up thinking things like this. My side of the government, it's so good. It's so righteous. My side's the God side of the government. We do wake up thinking like, my workplace, we have to do those things because this is the way everybody does those things and we're kind of the best and superior and like we have to do those things so that I can be served. We do wake up thinking things like, you know what, I'm going to adamantly defend my political candidate because he or she is very Jesus-like to me even though they may have some serious moral flaws and failures. We do wake up thinking, you know what, I actually will not associate with that person because they don't think correctly about that topic. Those are things we do wake up thinking. And I would contend that those sorts of thoughts are when the mixtures of beast worship are influencing us. I only use them because these are things that I myself struggle with and think. Beast worship will trick you into thinking you're worshiping Jesus. Just, just think about the fervor in which we often support our political candidates. It often looks like cult worship. Or, or think about how hard for many of us in the room it is to distinguish our faith from our political party. I think all of these things, all of these things I just mentioned, they, they, they pr might mean you have a beast-worshipping problem. And Revelation 13 wants to wake you up to that fact. Right? I'm sure that, like, all of the examples I have, everybody's got an exception. Well, what about this? What about that? What, there's an exception here. And, you know, there probably are exceptions. But I just wonder if even our hearts wanting to find an exception for all of my examples are actually engaging in beast worship. The way that society goes, the way that culture goes, it's much easier to worship your empires and your Caesars, your emperors, than it is to not. And there are powerful forces that want to trick you into worshiping them by making you think they are just like Jesus. Whether they do things like Jesus, whether they speak like Jesus. So don't fall into the various ways in which it is easy in any time, in any place, in any institution, I would say, in any club, in any country, don't fall into those things so easy because you will end up worshiping the dragon and the beast. Don't baptize the dragon and the beast worship into Christianity. There is no place for that in the way of the lamb. Give it up to Jess for playing with the kid. Um, okay, message number three. I know we're going long here, but blame the rest of redemption. Um, <laughs> Sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. Um, John roast, I roast. You know, this is how it goes. Uh, <laughs> sorry. The Lord will deal with me. Um, okay, message number three. Although painful, 
Choose the way of the lamb and avoid the way of the beast. Although painful, choose the way of the lamb and avoid the way of the beast. The empires and the many, many empires that have the dragon behind them, operating and influencing them, which by the way, those empires and many empires rarely know that, they will look to discourage you in your faith and hurt you for your faith in Jesus. Sadly, in the West, Western society, which we're part of, Europe's part of that, sadly in the West, our faith in history has been perverted and used to hurt many people. Revelation 13 actually shows us that's beast worship. That's, that's following the way of the beast, not the way of the lamb. Choosing the way of the lamb will be painful because Satan himself and the two beasts that he uses will be after you. Right? We see this like in the literal sense of where Christians across the world are persecuted simply for being Christian. Simply for just saying, I will follow Jesus. I give my life to Jesus. There are Christians who are persecuted, tortured, killed across the world, even today, for just being Christians. We see a smaller level of this probably, I would say, in our culture in different ways when we see anger and hate and vitriol and how it's thrown against the Christian faith in all kinds of ways. And I think we see this worship of the beast and I would say a persecution of the way of the lamb when you see Christianity itself used like an oppressive empire. How demonic is that? It is maybe one of the most demonic things we could see. When any of that happens, it's easy for us as Christians to go, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to fight fire with fire. I'm going to fight that beast like that beast is fighting me. But we choose the way of the lamb. We fight back like the lamb. Time and time, again and again throughout Revelation, God's call to us is like, don't be like the beast, be like the slaughtered lamb which is a hard choice to make when you see all the beast behaviors happening towards your brothers and sisters in Christ or towards yourself. But that's the call. Choose the way of the lamb. We fight like slaughtered lambs, which means we take on death. We make self-sacrifice in order to love this world and help them see God's love. When the world treats you like a beast or like a dragon, you keep living like a slaughtered lamb, church. The way of the lamb is so utterly different than the way of the dragon and the beast. And what's so sad is it's much easier, much easier to just fall in and be drones of the dragon. Everybody's doing it. I'm not trying to be like insulting to people that aren't Christians, but that is the power of Satan in this world. He convinces harm towards each other is okay because everybody's doing it. That's the way of the beast. The way of the lamb will bring you into behaviors that are so utterly different than the rest of society. So one of the messages of of Revelation is, is following and living into the way of the lamb is worth it but it's difficult. And we met with resistance, spiritual resistance, that plays out in actual societal things, in societal ways.
Choose the way of the lamb, not the way of the beast and the dragon. So church, may we see all this imagery in Revelation 13 and may we hear its message for us rather than lose its message by trying to predict everything from Revelation 13. We need to wake up to the dragon and the beast way seen in the ways of the Roman Empire and really any empire or many empires. And we need to not baptize the beast and dragon behaviors seen in empires into our faith because that ends up making us dragon worshipers. And we need to choose the way of the lamb. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for using imagery like this to wake us up to realities in our world. God, help us to never go too far with the imagery, God. I think sometimes with imagery we could go too far in the sense we go more extreme than what you're trying to communicate, so protect us from that. But God, I think more often than not we're very apathetic and we don't go far enough in hearing what you're trying to speak to us. And so God, help us to hear your word exactly as you mean it for us in this time and place. May we be worshipers of the lamb and choose the way of the lamb time and time again in here and throughout our weeks. We love you, Jesus. We need you. Thank you for being the slaughtered lamb. Amen.